And good evening once again. Welcome back to Systematic Theology, up to session 47 tonight. And once again, we're continuing to look at redemption. And that's God's work, God's project of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, then applying that redemption to the elect. And our structure for this part of the study has been to go through the logical order of God's application of salvation benefits to his people. And that order of application, as we've learned, is called the ordo salutis, just a fancy Latin phrase that means the order of salvation, the ordo salutis. And different theologians differ slightly on the order, but I've been presenting the order the way they're printed in your notes. And we covered in the past step zero, which is election. Election is God choosing his people by name in eternity past. In the last few sessions, we covered steps 1a and 1b, the effectual call and regeneration. And what regeneration is, is the new birth. It's being born again. And that's the entry point to the rest of the order of salvation, the gateway, if you will. And in terms of the logical order, the rest of the benefits of salvation can't be applied to an elect person until that person is born again. That's because before the new birth, our hearts are corrupt. Scripture describes our heart as the center of our being, with our lives flowing from that center. We studied how the heart is kind of like the headwaters of rivers. If the headwaters of a river are corrupt and contaminated, then everything downstream is contaminated. Before the new birth, our hearts were corrupt. So everything downstream from our heart was cor corrupt and contaminated by sin. We studied how the mind the will and the affections are all contaminated by sin before the new birth. And that had to be remedied before God, the Holy Spirit, can apply the rest of the benefits of salvation. The way that God, the Holy Spirit, remedies the situation of our evil hearts is by the new birth. This is what we call the monergistic work of God, which just means that God does the work of regeneration alone without any help from us. We couldn't help him anyway, if we, if, even, if he'd wanted, even if we'd wanted to do so. And we're working our way through steps 2a and 2b in the order of salvation that you see there in your notes. Repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ. Now they're labeled 2a and 2b, the number 2, because steps 1a and 1b, the effectual call of regeneration, they have to come first before we can go any further with the application of the benefits of redemption. The effectual call and the new birth, regeneration, they're the gateway to the rest of the order of salvation until the Holy Spirit effectually calls us, it causes us to be born again. Our hearts are obstinate and hardened and we're enemies of God. Logically, God must give us a new heart before anything else is done. But once we have a new heart, which is a work that God does alone, the next logical step will inevitably follow and must follow. The next logical steps, what I've listed as 2A and 2B. So what's with this 2A and 2B anyway? Why not just have 2 and 3, steps 2 and 3? Well, I have 2A and 2B because there really isn't any logical order between repentance unto life and saving faith. Logically speaking, they both happen together. They're two sides of the same coin. In fact, the theologian Gerhardus Voss puts both saving faith and repentance together under the term conversion. 
Now, not every theologian does that. Not every theologian lumps faith and repentance together under the term conversion. But I think that's a good way of looking at conversion. When we are consciously converted, we become aware of the change of this new heart that God already worked in us below our conscious level. So in the new birth, God works below the conscious level, gives us a new heart. Now, now that we're born again, we become conscious of it. And that outworking is now in our conscious actions. The new birth already changed our heart, and therefore our mind, our will, and our affections are now changed. And then in conversion, we now begin to use the new mind, the new will and affections. We begin to use them. That first use is in repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're looking at saving faith and repentance unto life as two sides of the same coin. We'll look at the book of Acts first of all tonight. Book of Acts, chapter 20. We'll be in verses 18 to 21. We'll see here how these two things happen together logically when a person is converted. Now in this passage, Paul is giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Acts 20, beginning in verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his farewell address, Paul brings his ministry efforts to their minds. He fulfilled his ministry in the hard work of instructing believers in the faith, both in public and in believers' houses. But he also preached the gospel to unbelievers, both Jews and Gentiles. When Paul preached the gospel, he also preached the command embedded in the message of good news. That command is to believe the gospel. Paul called for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the appropriate response to the message. But with that faith would come repentance toward God. Paul mentions both together because they're two sides of the same coin. The elect, when God the Holy Spirit applies redemption, the elect will have a response of both saving faith and repentance unto life. This twofold response is what Gerhardus Voss defined as conversion. Voss phrased the definition of conversion like this. He said, it is that act of God by which he turns the regenerate man in his consciousness to himself in repentance and faith. The scriptures present faith and repentance as being both the duties of man and the gifts of God. They're duties because they answer the commands of God to man. Saving faith answers the command of Christ in the Gospel of John, which I'll read from next. John chapter 6, verse 28. When the crowds who had been fed with miraculous bread asked this. Then they said to him, what must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Then in verse 29, Jesus answers them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You believe in him whom he has sent. That's the works of God. 
Repentance unto life, on the other hand, answers another command, the command to live our lives in a blameless manner, to turn away from sin and seek righteousness. And an example of this command is what God spoke to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 17. I'll read there next. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life are twin duties, twin commands, two sides of the same coin, which is why I'm showing them as steps 2a and 2b in the Ordo Salutis. Logically, they come together. In fact, Jesus as he began to proclaim the gospel during his earthly ministry, presented both of these duties together. And I'll read next from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there you have those twin commands. Repent, believe in the gospel. These twin commands, repentance unto life and repentance unto life and believing the gospel, that saving faith in Christ, are logically taken together. And together we can refer to them as conversion. Now, even though faith and repentance unto life are man's duties and answer God's commands, Scripture also shows they are gifts of God. They're gifts of God. They are both the duties of man and the blessings of God. It is the power of God that make faith and repentance possible in the elect and also certain in the elect. And the Lord emphasizes this in the book of Ezekiel, which is where I'll be next. In the prophecy, looking forward to the Lord's work in granting a new heart in his people. And I'll read from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Lord states that he is the one who will give a new heart in regeneration. Then the Lord promises to enable his people to walk according to righteousness. There's a principle behind this. For the elect, the Lord enables what he commands. For the elect, the Lord enables what he commands. Now, we already looked at saving faith in previous studies. And tonight, we'll examine repentance unto life. Now, first, we need to define repentance unto life. And I believe I have this there in your notes. From the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it emphasizes the fact that repentance is a gift from God. It defines repentance unto life as, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. 
Repentance unto life is a saving grace, as it says here, a saving grace. It's the result of God's granting of grace associated with salvation, meaning it's a gift of God. As we go through the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, we'll find that God never leaves us on our own. God just doesn't dump us off somewhere and say, okay, the rest is up to you completely. Go do, go do it. The entire Ordo Salutis is a gift from God granted by grace. And it's absolutely necessary for the logical order in the Ordo Salutis to be the way it is. Regeneration, the new birth, has to come before repentance unto life. In the new birth, God grants us a new heart. The heart, the core of who we are. It's like the headwaters of a river. If the source or headwaters are pure, what is downstream will be pure. The heart is like headwaters for three streams. We've gone over this before. The mind, the will, and the affections. Unless our mind, will, and affections are changed by God from impure to the beginnings of what they should be, True repentance unto life is impossible. This is because true repentance unto life involves the mind, the will, and the affections, or what we love. True repentance involves regret, a conscious change of our mind, will, and affections, and then the turning of our will to the opposite goal of what we willed before conversion. This turning, it's not just an outward, this turning over a new leaf type thing, or I'm going to go on an ethical improvement program. It's a turning from a condition of being lost and estranged from God to serving God wholeheartedly. Now, in the Ordo Salutis in your notes, I listed repentance unto life as step 2A and saving faith as step 2B. This is because there's no logical order between the two. They're two sides of the same coin, and the theologian Robert Raymond called these two steps interdependent graces. Interdependent graces. Our first Breath after the new birth is both faith and repentance, so to speak. Our first breath after the new birth, faith and repentance. There are several New Testament passages that mention these two steps together as part of conversion. I'm going to just quickly read four of these verses, and I'll give you the address for your notes. First of all, in Acts 20, verse 21, Paul summarized his ministry before the Ephesian elders with this passage on what he declared testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Puts the two together. Repentance, faith. Hebrews 6.1, again, mentions repentance and faith together. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, Verse 15, Jesus proclaimed the gospel in this way, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. And then in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, Paul told this to the Ephesian disciples who had only been baptized with the baptism of John. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. Saving faith and repentance unto life are, as Robert Raymond described them, interdependent graces. Since they're both, are, both of them are 
immediate conscious response after the new birth. And as Gerhardus Voss stated, they are both part of conversion. Repentance is a conscious action involving the mind, the will, and the affections, or what we love. And that's why regeneration must, it has to logically come first. The mind is involved in repentance because we have an entire change of view about our past life of sin. In fact, the New Testament Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means a change of mind. We come to conscious knowledge that we had personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness because of our sin. Paul, as he wrote to the Ephesians in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, reminded them of where they had come from before their new birth and conversion. And I'll read from that section. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul reminded them that before conversion, they couldn't intellectually grasp their guilt. They didn't grasp that they were helpless and defiled in sins of body and mind. Repentance must involve the mind because it includes the new understanding of the true gravity of sin. The will is also involved in repentance. We have the mind and the will. The will is also involved in repentance because there's a change in our purpose. There's a turning from sin and a turning toward God. I'll turn next to the book of Acts chapter 2, and here Peter is addressing the crowds who had heard the followers of Christ speaking with tongues at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The 3,000 who heard Peter were cut to the heart. God produced a sudden heart change within them. Being cut to the heart is not just something that is superficial. You know, Pastor Tim taught us this not very long ago, that the word translated here as cut can be better translated as pierced. And it is translated that way in the New American Standard. God pierced the hearts of those 3,000. God did a work of creation in them, changing the core of who they were. And when Pastor Tim taught us when he covered this passage, salvation is a heart-piercing experience. 
verse 37 tells us how in response to God's work in their heart, their will was changed. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter responds, they must repent and be baptized. Their will, their power to make choices had been changed. Their choices were now directed to a new purpose, which was a turning from sin and a turning toward God. Now, in addition to the mind and the will being involved in repentance, the affections are involved, the affections. What we love is affected and involved in repentance. Our affections at a foundational level begin to turn from love of sin to love of righteousness. Augustine wrote of the need for true love of righteousness. He argued that if someone refrains from sin only because they fear punishment, then that person would actually want to do the sin if only the punishment didn't exist. That person does not truly love righteousness. Here's how Augustine phrased the need for love of righteousness. He wrote, He then is an enemy to righteousness who refrains from sin only through fear of punishment, but he will become the friend of righteousness if through love of it he sin not, for then he will be really afraid to sin. For the man who only fears the flames of hell is afraid not of sinning, but of being burned. But the man who hates sin as much as he hates hell is afraid to sin. This is the fear of the Lord, which is pure, enduring forever. For the fear of punishment has torment and is not in love. And love, when it is perfect, casts it out. In Repentance Unto Life, True repentance associated with conversion and salvation. Our affections are changed. Our affections change from love of sin to love of righteousness. It can't be any other way because God is a God who loves righteousness. In Psalm 33, verse 5, it tells us of this attribute of God's divine nature when it says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. When we are saved, a new foundation is laid in our lives. Where we see our sin for what it really is, we begin to abandon our love for our former sins, and our affections begin to turn toward loving what God loves, which is righteousness. And for an example of this kind of change that God works in a regenerated person, and a true repentance that results, we can look at the example of Zacchaeus. And I'll read the account of Zacchaeus from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 2 to 10. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today 
Salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, there's a great difference between Zacchaeus standing before everyone and saying those things and the Pharisee in the parable who, remember, if you remember, stood in prayer thanking God that he was not a sinner like other people. Zacchaeus was looked down upon by the Jews as a sinner because he was a tax collector. The reason why tax collectors became rich was because they were in a position to not only collect what was due to Caesar, but to shake down people for an additional amount to enrich themselves. Something happened to Zacchaeus at this point. He stood before all and agreed with the assessment of the public that he was a sinner. He said before all, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And the Greek word translated defrauded can mean to subject someone to a shakedown or to extort money from them. It was common with tax collectors of that time to falsely inflate the value of someone's property to get more in taxes. And if someone couldn't pay the tax, they would sometimes advance the money themselves. So now the poor person owed the tax collector personally. And then the tax collector would turn around and charge a large interest rate like a loan shark. Zacchaeus was admitting before everyone that he did those things. As Zacchaeus confessed his sins, he made a vow that came from his regenerated heart, a vow coming from repentance. He pledged before all that he would restore fourfold what he had sinfully taken from people by extortion and fraud. Before this, Zacchaeus financed a, a lavish lifestyle by extorting the common people. Before regeneration, he loved his sin. After regeneration, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism stated that we looked at a few minutes ago, he had grief and hatred of his sin, and he turned from it to God with a new purpose of obedience. Not only would he stop defrauding, but he began what had to have been a long project to give fourfold restitution to those he had cheated. This kind of multiple restitution, that was the penalty that a thief was supposed to give. Zacchaeus was admitting that he was a thief. But here's where all the difference is made for Zacchaeus. When in verse 9, Jesus says, Today, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. This sudden change in Zacchaeus didn't happen just because he decided to have a change of heart. This isn't like the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, where you know, he was shown past, present, and future, and it kind of resulted in him reclaiming himself. All of this happened because Jesus sought Zacchaeus and called him by name out of a large crowd. This might bring to mind a passage that I'll read next from Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verses 12 to 14. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus sought Zacchaeus and called him out of the crowd by name. Zacchaeus had been chosen from before the world was by name. 
And on this day, God applies redemption to him. He is given the gift of the new birth. Because of the new birth, the rest of the Ordo Salutis comes to Zacchaeus and he is converted. God granted him saving faith. And God granted him repentance unto life. It wasn't that Zacchaeus sought Jesus. It is that Jesus sought Zacchaeus. Jesus then announces that salvation has come to that house. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus. The repentance that Zacchaeus showed publicly and outwardly was the result of God's gift of conversion, which came from God's gift of the new birth to him. What Zacchaeus showed before all as the fruit and evidence of new birth lines up with the definition of repentance unto life that we looked at from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Zacchaeus had, at that moment, a true sense of his sin. He admitted to being a thief in the way he carried out his occupation as a tax collector. He went from a love of his sin to a grieving and hatred of his sin. He turned from his sin to God. He sought new obedience by undertaking this difficult task of restitution. Now, the repentance that we're covering is what the King James Version and the Westminster Catechisms and other sources call repentance unto life, and what the ESV translation calls repentance that leads to life. Why am I emphasizing this term repentance unto life rather than just calling it repentance? Well, I'm doing this because there is repentance and then there's repentance. There is true repentance associated with true conversion, and a false repentance that comes from the flesh rather than being the gift of God. The 19th century theologian Bavinck wrote this on the difference between fleshly and false repentance and repentance unto life. He wrote, The new life implanted in regeneration yields in relation to the intellect, faith and knowledge and wisdom, in relation to the will, conversion and repentance, this includes but may not be reduced to psychological categories such as a personality change. It is rather deeply rooted in the heart. It includes turning away from sin and positively toward God and his law. Not superficial regret, but godly sorrow that leads to salvation is called for. Worldly sorrow based on short-term regret only leads to death. Bavick's explanation of the difference between repentance unto life and false repentance is a mirror of where I'll be next, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll read verses 9 to 11. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, 
what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul here presents us with a contrast. The contrast is between two kinds of sorrow leading to opposite outcomes. One kind of sorrow is associated with true repentance, and that's godly grief, or as other translates, translations phrase it, godly sorrow, or sorrow that is according to the will of God. This is the kind of sorrow that looks to God, and the fact that the sorrow comes from having sinned against a holy God. This is the kind of sorrow that produces true repentance, the repentance we're looking at tonight, which is the repentance associated with salvation. Now, once again, going back to the quote from Bavink, this repentance unto life is deeply rooted in the heart and results in turning away from sin. There is what we might call a negative and a positive aspect to this sorrow and repentance. The negative is that we see our past sin as we should see it, in the most negative sense, as an affront to the most holy God. The positive is that we change our minds about it, seeking to do righteousness instead. This was the effect of the sorrow that the Corinthians felt. Their godly sorrow arose from a deep change of how they viewed their sin. Paul went on in the next verse to show this change that came from godly grief. And Paul here accumulates words upon words to show the positive change that marked their repentance. Paul uses the words earnestness, eagerness, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. By the word punishment that we see here in the ESV translation, I agree with John Calvin on the meaning of this word punishment here. It is an avenging of wrong, which is the vengeance we sort of, in a sense, take upon ourselves for violating God's law and a proper groaning and shame in what we have done. Now we'll look at two examples that show the contrast between the true, the, the true and the false types of repentance. And first we'll look at an example of true repentance. This is the example of the Apostle Peter. And we'll turn to the Gospel of Luke, verses 31 to 34 to start with or Luke uh, chapter 22, 31 to 34. In this passage, Jesus is warning Peter about the test that Peter would undergo and fail, but then restoration would come. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus warned Peter that he was about to enter a great trial of faith. Jesus had prayed for Peter so Peter would not ultimately apostatize or fall from the faith completely. But he would sin by denying Jesus, not just once, but it would be a threefold denial. Jesus' message of hope here was that Peter would turn from this. He would turn again. The Greek grammar here shows that Peter turning again would be a definite action at a point in time. We could say it like this, when once you have turned again. Jesus prophesied of Peter 
failing this test, but he would also gave assurance that Peter would change his mind and his course of action, returning to what Peter boldly proclaimed back in verse 33, that he would even endure prison and death for Christ. Next, we come to the point in the narrative where Jesus was seized and taken to the high priest, and Peter followed. At this point, when Peter is confronted, he denies knowing Jesus, not just once, but three times. We'll go forward a few verses. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Heartbreaking part of the passage is the words in the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I can imagine the Lord's eyes meeting Peter's eyes at that moment. Peter realized that he had sinned against and grieved the Lord himself. He wept tears of true remorse. Peter's remorse was not a fleshly remorse, the remorse of a captured criminal. It was the true sorrow of sinning against a holy God. And now we can fast forward again to when we see that Peter is forgiven. Now, I'm going to be in the Gospel of Mark next, in chapter 16. Mark 16. Here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome returned to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. Jesus had already been resurrected, and the stone of the tomb had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, here is what they saw. And I'll read from Mark chapter 16, verses 5 to 7. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Tell his disciples and Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times, had committed that sin against the Lord three times, but Peter didn't have the last word. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. The Lord Jesus had prayed for Peter. His faith had not failed completely. He had turned again in true remorse and repentance. Now the angel specifically included Peter by name as being numbered with the disciples. Peter's genuine repentance was assured, because Jesus had stated before that Peter would turn again. His repentance was granted by God and was a gift from God. Now we'll look at the opposite, an example of fleshly remorse, of false repentance, and repentance that's not a repentance unto life. That's the example of Judas. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke 22. I'll read verses 1 to 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them 
in the absence of a crowd. Now, one of the contrasts we might notice is that the sin of Peter was spontaneous. He was put on the spot by those accusing him of being a disciple of Jesus. But the sin of Judas was completely self-initiated. Judas had the idea of betraying Jesus. Judas went to the chief priests and officers out of his own evil initiative. Satan had entered into him, but Judas still concurred with the suggestion of Satan. Then Judas, he didn't spontaneously and quickly complete the betrayal. He began a process of investing thought and planning on how to complete his betrayal. In the example of Peter, we see that Peter turned again. He had changed course, which involved his mind, his will, and his affections. In the example of Judas, we'll also see that he changed his mind, but for a different underlying reason. I'll read the end of Judas's story. Now, here I'll go back to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27, verses 3 to 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Verse 3 tells us that Judas changed his mind about what he had done. The Greek text uses a different word for Judas changing his mind from the word that we've seen before. The Greek word metanoia is not used here. The different Greek word in this case can just mean wishing you could undo what you did. The mind of Judas wished he could change the past, but his underlying affections and will were not changed. Judas had grief over what he had done, but his grief was from fear of punishment because he had sinned against a holy God who he should have loved. And this shouldn't be surprising since even though Judas was one of the original 12 disciples, he was never saved. His change of mind wasn't really internal. He changed his mind, but only from fear of divine punishment. There was no change of mind where he hated sin. There was no change in his affections. He didn't change from love of the world to love of God. There was no change in his will where there was a, a change of purpose and a drive to turn away from sin and seek true pardon and cleansing from God. While Peter's repentance was shown in true and internal godly sorrow, Judas's change of mind only showed in the external act of trying to return the money. Remember when Pontius Pilate made an external show of washing his hands to try to avoid personal responsibility for his sin? Judas made the, an external show of throwing the money down into the temple. Finally, Judas, in despair over the enormity of what he had done and an inability to reverse it and guilt that could not be cleansed, resorted to the final step of his despair in hanging himself. This brings us back to the passage that we looked at a while ago, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where it said, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Peter, in his repentance, had godly grief, leading to a repentance associated with salvation. Judas had only worldly grief producing death. 
To wrap up this evening, we should remember that repentance is not only the event that results from the initial work of the Holy Spirit when we are converted, but it has an ongoing aspect throughout our Christian lives. As Christians, we still sin. We will not experience sinless perfection in this life. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it reminds us of our struggle against sin, but also gives the ongoing remedy of repentance and forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our initial repentance, when the Holy Spirit first applies redemption to us, changes us at a fundamental level. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just leave and then just leave us on our own. We are still God's project. Throughout our Christian lives, we're God's project. I'll end with this quote from John Calvin on how for the Christian, repentance is a grace that is granted initially at the application of redemption and how repentance is also a lifelong habit in those who are saved. Calvin wrote this in his work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Accordingly, so long as we dwell in the prison house of our body, we must continually contend with the defects of our corrupt nature. Indeed, with our own natural soul. Plato sometimes says that the life of a philosopher is a meditation upon death, but we may more truly say that the life of a Christian man is a continual effort and exercise in the mortification of the flesh till it is utterly slain and God's spirit reigns in us. Therefore, I think he has profited greatly who has learned to be very much displeased with himself, not so as to stick fast in this mire and progress no farther, but rather to hasten to God and yearn for him in order that having been engrafted into the life and death of Christ, he may give attention to continual repentance. Truly, they who are held by a real loathing of sin cannot do otherwise.